0: I V What is it like to spend an entire career working in government? How does one person go about handling everything from district administration to building India's first government health insurance scheme to managing coal auctions to reforming teacher education? Mr. Anil Swaroop joins us on this episode of the Pragati Podcast to tell us all about it. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics and international relations. I'm your host, Pawan Srinath. Mr. Anil Swaroop is the author of Not Just a Civil Servant. This is a book chronicling his 38 years of working as an IS officer for both the Uttar Pradesh government and for the government of India. He was instrumental in starting the RSBY, India's first successful government health insurance scheme. He also led a project monitoring group for the government of India at a time when most large projects and investments were stalling. He's worked in a whole host of areas that he talks about at length in his book, Not Just a Civil Servant. Today on the Pragati podcast, I talk to Mr. Swaroop about some of his work and about life in government in general. We'll start our conversation with Mr. Anil Swaroop after this short break.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to another amazing week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you aren't following us on social media, why aren't you? We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. like to thank our sponsors this week, Paytm Money and HDFC Life. We appreciate our sponsors, and hey, this doesn't happen without them. On Paisa Vasa, Anupabh is in conversation with P.V. Subramaniam, author and CEO of subramani.com, to talk about how important it is to plan for your retirement. On Geet Fruit, Tejas Dinkar and Jishnu discuss the teaser and batsuit reveal for the new Batman movie starring Robert Pattinson. This week on IBM likes, Abbas Rithika and Antariksh talk about movies with multiple plot lines that come together in the end. On Litnama, Lakshmi talks to Hardeep Vagela and Mohammed Munim from the band The Words of Alif. They talk about how the band came to be and more. On football shootball, the guys talk about Liverpool qualifying for the Champions League, City getting banned from it, and Arsenal thrashing Newcastle for a 4-0 win. On Postcards from Nowhere, Utsav shares some dark truths about Indian food. On the Filter Coffee podcast, Karthik is joined by CEO and founder of the My Child app, Harsh Sangra, to discuss this journey of a startup. On Ganatantra Tantra, host Surya and Alok speak with Professor Chandan Gowda about Karnataka politics and history. On Beyond Cliché, Almas is joined by the Mahiway actor Pushti Shakti to talk about beauty beyond size. On the Pragati podcast, Pawan is joined by Avinish Ambale, who sheds light on what is artificial intelligence and how do we learn what we learn. On Simplified, Chuck, Narin and Tony talk about Stoicism. And with that, let's get you back to your show.
0: Mr. Swaroop, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Pragati Podcast. Welcome to Bangalore as well. Thank you very much. You've written this wonderful book, not just a civil servant. And you've given us so many glimpses of your long career in government. And uh, I want to say I love the title of the book as well. uh, Because I think the role that you don when you enter government, I mean, you have to wear so many hats and step into so many shoes, that one term like civil servant need not necessarily capture all the nuances of it. Uh, So I want to really start off from where I think most civil servant start off, which is the idea of uh, the role of a deputy commissioner or a district collector. Uh, we know that this is the collector is a term uh, and a post that comes from the colonial era as well. But we really want to understand what is the DC's role today, because every district has one. We know that they're important. Uh, could you tell us about? Uh, you know, this if, role? if
2: I were to put it in a few words, uh, to my mind, the role of a DC or a collector or a district magistrate is basically to coordinate the functions of various departments that function in a district. To my mind, he is the principal coordinator in the district. And okay. he, since he carries that authority with him, he's able to pull everyone together. There is such multiplicity of functioning that happens at the district level. If there weren't to be a district magistrate or an officer like him or an institution like him, there would be chaos. So it's basically doing coordination work there. And in case there is a difference of opinion amidst departments to take a call on those issues.
0: And uh, there is the old colonial role was more focused on taxes, revenue and law and order.
2: Absolutely. It's undergone a sea change okay. uh, from primarily collection of revenue and maintenance of law and order. Hmm. I think the focus now has shifted to development work. 90% of the time of the District collector or district master goes in managing the development-related issues. Though in some cases, when there is a crisis, then they, he has to manage a crisis, whether it's related to law and order or otherwise. There could be a crisis with regard to floods. There could be a crisis regarding law and order. So that, of course, he does that. But his primary job nowadays is to take development forward.
0: But there is also this role of the district magistrate, right? So there is also a legal role that um, uh, the D.C. plays. Could you tell us about how that? Yes,
2: actually, under the CRPC, uh, Hmm. the district magistrate has a definitive role. Uh, There are other roles also of the district magistrate in terms of overseeing the law and order uh, within the district. Uh, That is a very important role in some of these states where law and order is a bit of an issue. A lot of time of the district magistrate does get spent there. So whether it is in terms of uh, maintaining that law and order to Mm -hmm. use of various sections of CRPC in imposition of certain provisions there and ensuring that uh, law and order is maintained, he plays a very important role.
0: Are there... um cases also that the dm uh, deals with so yes he does that's he, the part that i think a lot of us don't understand clearly so there's the police <laughs> and there'll be somebody in the district uh, who's the head of police there are also local courts so where so does the, the dm the come in the district
2: magistracy along with his subdivision magistrate uh, use certain provisions of crpc for preventing occurrence of law and order issues okay so there is a section called section 107 which is preventive arrest of okay. people who are likely to create that problem. So there are certain provisions of law that get implemented by the district magistrate and his officers, the subdivision magistrates. Similarly, if there is a land dispute which uh, leads to law and order problem, that is Section 145 of the CRPC, that also gets executed by the district magistrate and his team of officers. So the district magistrate does play a role as far as that is concerned. then in some of the states under the Arms Act, the licenses are issued by the district magistrate, the arms licenses. So district magistrate has that role uh, even today.
0: So, Mr. Swaroop, you were in the Uttar Pradesh cadre. So, both on the law and order side, on the development side, uh, as a DC, you would have faced um, immense challenges, perhaps greater challenges than, say, you know, being a DC in Karnataka or uh, a certain other states. So, could you tell us, I mean, you've written so many stories, especially when you were at uh, yeah, Lakhimpur yeah, uh,
2: Khera. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, could you tell us… You know. Uh,
2: Fortunately or unfortunately, anything that could happen in a district happened during my tenure at district of <laughs> Starting with uh, the mandal agitation, the theater agitation, the uh, terrorist problem, the flood problem. Terrorist, the, as in this is the time yes, when the Khalistani terrorists yes, were still Yes, absolutely. I was present at the spot where we eliminated six Khalistani terrorists. It was an encounter that lasted for 18 hours. It's an experience of lifetime. I know. I
0: was also amazed when I was reading. I mean, usually we see people from the police involved in an activity like this, that you as the DM and DC were also there.
2: We uh, we worked as a team and that really made a lot of difference. Uh, So police has a function on the spot of uh, maybe firing at them. But there's a whole lot of issues at the back end that are required. So for example, summoning forces, additional forces from elsewhere, was a job which I performed uh, getting in touch with the Home Secretary there,
1: Hmm. ensuring
2: that we did get some uh, more forces there to battle uh, the situation. So uh, there's a lot of additional activity that is required beyond uh, firing uh, a rifle. So in that sense, it worked. And secondly, um, in all encounters, uh, the credibility of the encounter is questioned on occasions, whether the people who were killed were actually terrorists or criminals whether there was actually an encounter, that's that's how you have these magisterial inquiries. Now, if the district magistrate himself is present on the spot and overseeing what is happening, obviously, the, no one will ever doubt what is going on on the spot. In UP, there was this problem in the adjoining district, servant, certain so-called terrorists were killed and later on it was discovered they weren't terrorists or at right. least it was alleged they were not terrorists. It created a lot of problems for the government. So in that sense, I think the presence of a magistrate does make a lot of difference and it did in that sense. No one questioned what happened on that fateful night and the superintendent of police finally got the president's gold medal for that so it does work. You know the bottom line is ability to keep people along with you to work in coordination with others as I said in the beginning, the job of the district magistrate is to keep everyone together to work as a team so if police has a problem say with some other organization in the district, it's the job of the district magistrate to see that doesn't happen
0: So would you be able to tell us about a typical day when say crises were not happening, uh, um, a typical day in the life of a DC, how would a DC spend his or her time?
2: You know, normally, as I did, I used to reach the office earlier than the scheduled time. At that time, the scheduled time was 10 o'clock. I used to reach the office at 930, which was not the usual practice. At that point in time, a lot of work got conducted from the, uh, which was called the camp office from residence office. I didn't do that. Hmm. I did all my work at the office. So when you reached there, you did a bit of planning for the day. And then typically, say around 10, 30, 11, you sat in the court for a while. And the okay. cases, both revenue cases and some of the criminal cases, then there were meetings that were, were to be held during the, and there was a time to meet people. So typically you were attending to court on a normal day. You were uh, attending a few meetings and then uh, you were attending to the people who came to meet you. And I have mentioned some of the incidents that happened when some people did come to meet me. It's an extremely fascinating experience as a district magistrate.
0: So lots of small uh, conflicts, lots of small favors, lots of little problems. People come with a diversity of these. Absolutely.
2: You? You, you can't define it per se. It's, it comes from all types of problems people will come up. They will come up with their personal problems, their family problems, all sorts of problems they'll come to you. I, I think half the problems get sorted by listening to them patiently. Uh, many of those The fact that they have an access to the collector, the fact that they are able to reach out to collector and talk to him, I think uh, assuages a lot of their uh, hurt feelings. Because uh, I I think the biggest problem that the bureaucracy faces is accessibility. If Mm. the bureaucrats do become accessible, if they can find time to reach out to people or attend to people's problems. uh, Everything is not in your hand. You can't solve all the problems. But the fact that you've heard them out uh, does make a lot of difference.
0: Okay, uh, so do you think the role of the DC uh, has? Have you seen a change in say oh, yes. the last two decades? Yes. So I, today, a young officer who is joining as a DC, how would their life? It be will different? be
2: substantially different. I, I think it's more and more into development. It is moving hmm. towards development, and rightly so, as society is gradually stabilizing. I think indulgence in law and order does not require that much time of a collector now as it would perhaps require at that point in time. Revenue collection also issue has, uh, the role has come down. So it's more into development now.
0: And uh, does a DC also have a larger and better equipped team to support? Yes, certainly. Or?
2: Now now you have uh, a lot of specialists sitting there, a mm-hmm. lot of outsiders sitting there, a lot of consultants sitting there to advise the district master, which was not there during my time. So there's a lot of inputs are coming there. Data analysts. So when I visit districts now, I find a lot more, informed response to what the questions that are raised, because there's a lot of analysis that's happening at the district level. And because of course, technology is helping.
0: Because a lot of the times <coughs> we see that, because there are so many day-to-day crises, a lot of the times is spent in firefighting. But I guess if with a larger and better team, uh, there's also a space for more proactive action. Indeed, I,
2: still a lot of time gets spent on firefighting. But I would believe with, with the technology tools that they have, and much more informed people, much more qualified people to assist them. I think that part becomes easier. Hmm. Okay.
0: So, uh, you know, uh, I also wanted to ask you, you know, we have seen so many um, caricatures of the bureaucrat-politician relationship from the classic yes minister and G Mantri G uh, to, you know, more modern takes, you know, be it in Tamil movies or Hindi movies or others. But could you shed some light about this uh, equation um, you know what would an ideal equation be between a politician and a bureaucrat? See, ideal situation
2: see? would be if the civil servant defines his role very clearly and understands the limitation of the politician. What has to, I I can't talk about the politician, but I can talk about the civil servant. I did. I, I shouldn't say that I didn't have problems with the politicians. I did. But I think they were substantially limited because I understood my own limitations and I understood the limitations of the politician. Once you define the role clearly and once you are clear in your mind, then there's not much of a problem. Problem arises if you're not clear in your mind, you're not clear about your own domain, you don't understand the limitations of the minister who's there only for five years or maybe perhaps less in a state like UP. And so he has his problems. But what I found was that if you were clear and you had no personal axe to grind, then the politician would by and large listen to you. If there is a major difference of opinion, you are transferred out. As I say in my book, transfer is like death. It is inevitable. So one should not really bother about it. Like in Hindu philosophy, you're born again, and you can do the same thing all over again. So why bother about transfer? The moment you reduce your expectations vis-a-vis the politician, I think the life becomes much simpler, and you are able to do what you want to do. Secondly, we must clearly understand what is illegal And what is not what Hmm. is illegal, obviously, no matter who says it should not be done, but something which is not legal. And there is a difference between ultimately the politician should prevail in a democracy. The job of the bureaucrat is to give his opinion free and frank. If he gets overruled on an opinion, he should go by the then he should not he should not play politics with it. He should implement the decision in letter and spirit. But if a decision is illegal then he should not do it. And if this is clear in the mind of a civil servant, I don't think he'll have many problems. I did have some, but not very many problems. Over a period of time, you develop a reputation for yourself where politicians know where they can fit you. So if you're not too, you know, desirous about going to a particular post, then life becomes fairly easy. Moreover, if you are efficient and you, you are known for your integrity, then if there are jobs to be done, then you'd be picked up for those jobs. So it's a question of, the choice that you excise, the decision that you make. And that decision is purely civil servants. Uh, We have no control over the politician. When we try to try and manipulate the politician, then there is a problem. When we try something for our own sake, then there's a problem. But if you are clear in your mind as to you don't expect much from the politician, it's best not to expect, I would say. If you don't expect much from the politician, you do a job as a professional, then I don't think there will be much of a problem
0: you mentioned uh, transfers being uh, as inevitable as death i mean i'm amazed that throughout your book so many times uh, you've had friends colleagues batchmates uh, calling you congratulating you on uh, transfers before you found out yourself could you tell us about how uh, transfers often work we just we just know that sometimes officers get um, you know uh, taken off in 6 months 3 in months in before the they nin- can even settle in into the role in
2: the 90s road. in up and I've used that phrase in the book also, it was rumored that the only industry that flourished in the state was transfer industry (laughs) because the officers were being transferred left, right, and center. Uh, The collectors had an average tenure of six to eight months. I mean, I wonder how does a person perform? But these are things beyond your control. You can't do anything about it. If the politicians does decide to transfer you, so be it, you get transferred. So once you define your boundaries in terms of the tasks that get given to you, and you work accordingly within those limitations, you can do a lot. And why I say that? Because instead of blaming the politicians for everything wrong going in the society, I think we should look at what we can, given the limitations. And I have come to believe that there's a lot, a lot that an officer can do, even if he's in an institution for only six months. And you don't have to really transform things. I mean, transformation will come about over a period of time. What one has to focus on, these small goals that you set for yourself, starting with coming to office on time, seeing that other officers come on time, displaying some sort of a discipline, keeping the office clean, being accessible. These are areas where politicians couldn't care less. So if you do that, you develop a reputation of being a disciplined officer, an officer who's trying to do a few things. If you're able to do a few things, you'll be able to do many more things. But if you want to do everything, sometimes you don't end up doing anything because you get so disgruntled, so very dissatisfied soon. You become disillusioned, you become cynical, because I have always believed that for a civil servant, he should not aim for a revolution. I think if he has to go in for a revolution, he should resign from the service, pick up a broom and join a political party. But if he's a part of a system, then he has to reform within the system. Having said that, I also believe that a lot of reform can happen, Hmm. despite the limitations that you have.
0: And we've seen the reform that you've Conducted over various things, and I want to come to that uh, in a bit. But I, uh, I love that you said that because in um, one of your postings to Allahabad, which was uh, almost like a punishment uh, posting to you, you found that in your office the biggest challenge was rats and bats. (laughs) And so the reform and the change in the office started from getting rid of the rats and bats first before moving Mm -hmm. on to
2: other things, right? There is an organic relationship between the mess that gets created. (laughs) So if you try and do one thing and remove other things, other things also start changing. It's it's actually ultimately boils down to your conviction in your own beliefs, Mm. in your own capabilities of being able to do things with things may appear to be impossible. And it happens not by, you know, as I keep saying, not through a revolution, but through gradual movement, gaining the confidence of people around you, because that's very important in India uh, or for that matter, anywhere else in the world, ultimate action gets done by a human being. So ultimately it boils down to human relations in management of human resources that you have. Once the team gets developed, Once the people around you start believing in you and you start believing in them, then things start changing. Again, it won't be a revolution, Uh, but the change will come. And with small little successes, people will get more and more confidence in themselves and the leader. And they will want to do more because they start enjoying that success. That's how it happens in an organization with board revenue where you're talking about bats and rats. I think uh, no one believed that things can happen there. Hmm. Uh, But when they started happening, then the belief got also built. And like you have a vicious circle, you have a virtuous circle of belief, then it grows and it grows pretty fast. And once people start believing in themselves, then things start happening.
0: Right. We've all often seen, and this is not just in government, but also often in the private sector and elsewhere, right? when there is a deep sense of cynicism uh, that's often sets in. Oh, there's a new officer who's come. Ah, kuch nahi hoga. Oh, there's a new minister who's come. New sarkar, which has come. Kuch nahi hoga. And fighting this cynicism is often more important than many other things. Right?
2: Absolutely. Unfortunately, in this country, Nation wants to know only negative things. You know, you open the television in the evening <laughs> right. and everyone is, everything seems to be falling down, falling apart. And we are so fond of masala <laughs> that we only want negative news. And that's they feed on, on my desire for negative news. There's so much good that is happening. The question is where I am able to roadshow that good to make people believe that things can happen because they are happening. And for that, you have to identify such things that are happening. And it's not necessary for big things to happen. As I said in the beginning, if the leader himself comes to office on time, he's demonstrating to people, others, that you can come on time if you want to, because I'm coming on time. Coming on time is no big deal, but we don't. So you can start with very, very small things, keeping your own office clean. So you're demonstrating that given the set of circumstances, you can still keep your office clean. For expeditiously discharging or clearing a file, You are demonstrated that files can be discharged expeditiously. So small, small things, if you start demonstrating, then people immediately in your vicinity, they start believing that it can happen because it is happening. Sometimes we pontificate. We tell others what needs to be done without actually demonstrating either ourselves or showing to them that it is happening. So it's very important to have such examples around you for you to roadshow or show to others that it is happening. To me, that's very important because until He sees that it is happening. He will never believe it can happen. Once he starts believing it can happen, he will also make it happen.
0: So here, before getting fully into organizational reform, government reform, and so on, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what are the motivations of a person who joins the civil services, right? What are the incentives and so on for someone to perform well? Because a lot of the times we see that uh, there is greater incentive not to to shake the boat too much, not to do too many things, not to take risks. And uh, it's very clear from your book and from your work uh, that for you, this was a calling. I mean, you even mentioned in the end that if you're reborn, you want to be reborn as a civil servant. And uh, but while that is there, across fields, but that would be there in a minority of uh, people. So for the marginal person who enters the civil services, how do you see the system of um, incentives and such that people perform? This is
2: very fundamental to human existence. Hmm. Why do you do what you do? And each person has his own call for doing what he does, what he doesn't. It could be financial. Right. It could be moral. It could be any reason. But only a madman doesn't have a reason for doing what he does. Now, the critical point is what gives me a kick? Hmm. What gets me moving? And this question occurred to me on a number of occasions. In one of the instances in the book also, uh, when I had gone to Brookings Institute, made a presentation before a team of Obama advisors, where also there was representatives of Bill Gates Foundation, of Rockefeller Foundation. This guy from Gates Foundation walked up to me after the presentation. He said, Mr. Saroop, you're so passionate about what you're doing. What are you getting out of it apart from the salary that government gives you? Very interesting question. So I asked him a counter question. I asked him, his foundation gives millions of dollars to poor countries. What do you get out of it? So he said, well, that's a job. But more than that, we derive a lot of satisfaction out of what we do. I said, you answered my question. I told him that the scheme that we are running, the Rashtriya Swastabhi is helping the poorest of the poor and a large number of people would have been dead, but for this scheme. So their good wishes somehow, anyhow, come back to me. That's good enough a kick for me to... So each individual has to define his own cake. You very correctly said that whether it's minority or majority, I don't know. I couldn't care less about others. I I have been so focused on myself. And in that sense, I've been totally selfish on doing what I can do. And if I can demonstrate to others that I am enjoying myself, for them to enjoy themselves, probably they could do what I was doing. So instead of pontificating and telling them what they should do. If you can become an example yourself in terms of demonstrating that you are thoroughly enjoying every moment of existence, which I did as an IS officer, let others also feel jealous about it, that how in the hell is this guy enjoying his moments when he's not having a a great time otherwise, which is normally deemed to be great time. What is not given in this book, when I was district magistrate and then my wife had to go to her hometown and she was traveling second class, my orderly almost couldn't believe it, that she was traveling second class. But how does that matter actually? It doesn't really matter so long as so long as you're used to such so-called discomforts and you live with it, but you enjoy moments. It's not merely traveling in a first class or an AC compartment. Yes, I would love to travel that if I could afford. Now I can. So I do travel. But it's a question of what you want to uh, define for yourself. It will be wrong of me to tell somebody else that this is good or this is bad. This judgment has to be taken by him. I can, however, demonstrate to him that I am thoroughly enjoying myself leading a life which may not appear to be very simple and easy, but I am thoroughly enjoying myself. You have an option. You can make that choice. The choice has to be made by that individual. If I am able to influence him, that's what I do these days. Post-retirement, probably I go twice and thrice to some destination in the country, talking to officers, executives of the private sector, telling them they have to define for themselves what they want in life. But each individual, Has gone through that period of getting a kick. So you can get a kick out of a glass of something that gives you a cake. Some people do not require anything to get a kick. By helping a poor man, you get a kick. By eating a nice ice cream, you get a kick. By watching a a beautiful picture, you get a kick. So each individual has to define his own kick. So long as I am clear in my mind as to what do I want, the problem arises with civil servants and otherwise is they're not very clear. They are trying to ape others. That's where the problem arises. So Mm -hmm. all this consumerism that is happening, you don't want a Mercedes car because you want it, because you see somebody else driving it and you want to have it because someone else has it. So your desire is not born out of what you want, but it is getting born out of somebody else's, what you see of others? That's where the problem arises. If it comes from within a desire, I think a person will be very satisfied. This is something which I try and convey to people. And some of them come back to me and tell me how nice they feel now when they try and look inwards to see what exactly do they want in life. So civil service is a vehicle through which you can realize what you want in life. So if I want to help poor people, and that's why I want to be an IS officer all over again, I don't think there's any service in the world that gives you such enormous opportunity to help the poorest of the poor, which I discovered during my career. That gave me enormous amount of kick. So why I want to be an IS officer? Because I know what I want. And to get that, an IS officer will help me Uh, get that. A businessman would want something else. But he should be clear in mind that the bank balance in his bank gives him the kick that he wants. Fair enough. That's his call he has to get. Then he should not blame somebody else for it. He should not. No one should blame somebody else. You are the master of your own actions. The moment we start believing in that, the moment we are clear in our mind, I think we'll be happy in our own ways.
0: So, Mr. Swaroop, one of the challenges, maybe this is universal, but we see this especially in India, you know, often uh, in an attempt to stop, you know, people with bad intentions from doing bad things. And I'm using that very broadly. We actually make it very hard for well-minded people to do good things. And uh, you mentioned this in your book and you mentioned uh, how you were vocal about it even while in service that one of the things that has happened in the last two decades in India is the five C's, which has made it exceptionally difficult for a um, civil servant to do well, right? And you, the five C's, if I'm not getting them wrong, are the CBI, the CVC, the CIC, the CAG, uh, C-A-G and, and the courts. courts. So could you tell us a little more
2: about you know this, how this has changed? You know, this uh, statement came in a slightly different context. Mm. And it has to be understood in that context. We are very fond of blaming politicians for every wrong in the country. It was in this context that I made this statement. And I said that these five institutions are manned by non-politicians. Right. Primarily civil servants. And some of the biggest inhibitors of fast working, of expeditious disposal are these institutions. Manned by civil servants. So we have to introspect. I'm a great believer in introspecting. Hmm. As I keep saying that blaming politicians for everything, I have no control. I, there's no way that I can influence them. That's their job. Let them do what they have to do. But given those limitations, are we performing our job? That's in that context that I said that. So could you know what us has happened? Anything to illustrate <clears throat> how I'll this complex? Look at happened. what CAG did. And that's a full chapter in my book. Right. Uh, in, in the so-called Skoll scam. The, f- I think the fundamental valuations were wrong. Hmm. The fundamental calculations were incorrect. And on the basis of that, there was massive grandstanding, which led to an environment where people stopped taking decisions. You know, I had the fortune or misfortune of heading the project monitoring group. And that was created because all decisions had come to a grinding halt and investments were not coming through. So I saw the impact of these reports. Now, I'm not saying there was nothing wrong. Yes, indeed, there was a lot of wrong in the allocation of core blocks. But on account of these miscalculations and on account of this grandstanding, what had happened was that all civil servants started believing that whether you did a right or wrong, you will be called to question at some point in time. So best is not to take a decision. So it brought about a policy and a decision paralysis in the government. Now, if it were as wrong as it was made out to be, I could understand. But my understanding of the situation was that, yes, they were wrongs, but they were made to believe as if everything had gone wrong. It was not so. Look at the consequences of what had happened. It impacted the decision-making process. All the core blocks since early 90s were cancelled. The CAG had not advised that they should be cancelled, but they were cancelled by the Supreme Court based on the report of the CAG. So what I am trying to say here is, these institutions, instead of stopping only wrong to be done, they have gone much beyond what they should be doing, thereby inhibiting. The tragedy is, these are manned by civil servants who has been through all this. Hmm. And yet to come up with such reports really shocks me. So that is what I've tried to bring out in my book. I'm not saying what Mr. Vinod Raya did, all was wrong. No. What I'm saying is he should have been more careful in terms of calculation. He should not have generalized. He should not have taken averages because as I mentioned in my book, the cost of mining varies from 400 to 4,000 rupees. How can you come at an average of around 590 rupees? It's all... Because by averaging, you are even closing. Now, look at the consequence. After the third round of coal block auction that we did, there were no takers for coal block. Okay. Even recently, they announced more auctions, no takers. Now, if 295 rupees per ton on an average was available, as per Mr. Vinod people would have taken these mines. I've also explained that why there was that rush in the beginning to get those mines. So okay. there was a reason for that. But all said and done, institutions like CAG have to be very careful about what they say. They have to nail the wrong. But for that, as I, to use Mr. Rai's face himself, they should not be merely accountants. They should be auditors. They should have a larger view of how things happen. And the wrong that has happened has to be nailed nice and proper. It cannot be in generic terms. You cannot take averages to nail a wrong. A wrong is a wrong and it's a very specific wrong. So nail that wrong. So there were wrongs. But the manner in which it is projected, stop decision making. That's one such example.
0: And here... Um um please tell me if I'm mistaken, especially when uh, there are people who are uh, in the later stages of their career now in you know top positions. The fear uh, a lot of the times is that because of some decision they took, they might get hauled up later. Absolute, absolutely. So uh, instead of enjoying a retirement in peace, absolute, you have to keep making court uh, visits and absolutely. absolutely. so that that is the paralysis. No, uh, see that sets the, in,
2: the right? one good thing that's happened in this government is. They have amended uh, Section 131D of the Prevention of Corruption Act, where it was originally provided that irrespective of whether you had malafide or not, you could still be nailed. Hmm. Now, that was tragic. I mean, so many officers are suffering on account of that. But that has been amended. Hopefully, that will help matters. But even otherwise, you know, I've always believed that when you point a wrong, there has to be a purpose behind it. And purpose is first to correct that wrong. And secondly, to ensure that that wrong doesn't get repeated. There are two primary objectives. Now, if the consequences are totally different, then the, my, my action has not served the purpose first done. So, I have always believed that when you try and analyze something, you must understand the ground realities as they operate. Not sit in a separate room and, you know, by hindsight wisdom, we try and evaluate things. It doesn't work that way. And the reason why there are IS officers who has control and orders general, to my mind, was that these guys have gone through the grind. They understand the ground reality. If they close their eyes to ground reality and start making observations for whatever purpose, whatever objective, that's that's for them to decide. I think it's very unfair.
0: And uh, it's also sad that I mean, like for example, the courts dictated that now all national resources
2: uh, should be auctioned. Right? I mean, you know, see, uh, we handed it on a platter to the courts. Right. The executive abdicated the authority which it had. And that vacuum was left and courts moved in. Hmm. I mean, power vacuum does not exist. Someone moves in. All right. So the courts moved in because executive was fighting amongst itself. They were blaming each other without doing most of the groundwork. And so the courts found that space and they walked in.
0: Mr. Sarup, thank you so much. I want to come back after a short break to talk about uh, the RSBY uh, one scheme in detail because I think it's an excellent example that's all the more relevant today because we are talking about Ayushman Bharat, NHPS, and more. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Sarup. Thank you. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheta. We are from the Open Library Project and we host a podcast called Paperback. Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries, suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Rena, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Lodha, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani and many more on our show Paperback. Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app, website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Pragati podcast. I'm Pavan Srinath and I have here with me Mr. Anil Swaroop, uh, who spent uh, a wonderful career in government and who's written the book Not Just a Civil Servant. Mr. Swaroop, one of the wonderful things that um, you helped kick off in your career is the RSPY, the Rashtriya Swasti Bhima Yojana. And uh, so this was new in that it's the first government-run or the publicly funded health insurance scheme that managed to work. Uh, You've mentioned about how there were previous attempts at the UHPS and others, which never quite took off. And today we have come to a state where we have the NHPS and the Ayushman Bharat, which are now taking this to a next level. So could you tell us about how this scheme was conceptualized and sort of what was the Reason for this to even come about?
2: You know, in government, uh, on occasions there are no reasons for things to happen; they happen, and then they find reasons for it. <laughs> I don't know what was the reason, but the prime minister did announce a formulation of a health insurance scheme for the poorest of the poor. This is in. This is in 2007. Okay. And no one had a clue as to how to go about it. The announcement was made, and as was the wont during the UPA uh, to government, uh, they set up a group of ministers uh, chaired by Mr. Chidamram. And uh, the job of this uh, group was to formulate that scheme.
0: So this was the EGOM
2: empowered group of ministers? Yes, yes. Whether it was empowered or disempowered, (laughs) I don't know. But that was the group of ministers. So in the first meeting, my minister could not go. The secretary also couldn't go. So I was deputizing for them.
0: And you were in the labor? I was in the
2: labor ministry. Uh, This is the other interesting Uh, thing that the health insurance scheme comes out Uh, of the labor ministry. There's a good story to how it came to us. Uh, I was director general labour welfare, and obviously the chairperson, the Mr. Chitambaram, turned towards the health secretary and asked him to formulate the scheme, and then it would be taken up in the next meeting. But the health secretary was very reluctant. He first, his reluctance was on account of the failure of health insurance elsewhere in the world, and second, uh, they were already preoccupied with national rural health mission, which had also been announced around that time. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was more political than anything else because the minister belonged to a different political party. I think the Mr. Jitamaram also was not very keen on health ministry. But this is a conjecture because he didn't persist with, with the health secretary and he turned towards his other secretary, Secretary of Banking and Insurance, hmm. who was his own secretary, who later on became the CAG of the country. He turned towards him and asked him to formulate a health insurance scheme because it was an insurance scheme. So he said that he was already running a scheme called the Universal Health Insurance Scheme, which was going nowhere. And hence, uh, he said that he would be not in a position to do that. And s- suddenly there was nobody to work out the details. So an officer whispered something into the ear of the finance minister. Mr. Chidambaram, Raman suddenly announced who is Mr. Anil Sarup. So I stood up with folded hands and telling him that I was already in pain because I was in labor. So he thought I was joking, <laughs> which indeed I was. And he was a bit upset. He said, Prime Minister has announced the scheme and it's a very serious matter. You will do that scheme. So I said, what has Labour Minister to do with that? So he said, well, it is for the workers. And since it is for the workers, you have to do it. I said, by that definition, all the schemes of the government should come to Labour Ministry. Of course, he was not very amused. And a decision was taken that Ministry of Labour will do the health insurance scheme. I came out like a zombie. I didn't know what had hit me.
0: Was this your uh, first posting in the central government? No,
2: I had worked here earlier. This was, I had come for the second time in 2006. I had come back Hmm. after cooling period in UP. I had come back here. So I didn't know what, how to go about it. So after having spent a few sleepless nights, in one of the nights I wrote down 300 questions. The first was, what is health insurance? But fortunately, on account of a very good team that was set up, we had support from the World Bank, the ILO. All these people got together and they had some idea about health insurance. They educated me about health insurance. And we came up gradually over a period of time with this scheme called the Rashti Bima Yojana, which initially not many people believed would work because it was something very new. No one knew, no one ever thought that health insurance could be, you know, implemented at such a large scale. But I think the beauty of the scheme was that while formulating the scheme, we were totally focused on the consumer. Unlike other government schemes which come from somewhere else, rather than focusing on the beneficiary, so we looked at the beneficiary very closely and we looked at three primary characteristics of this beneficiary. One, he was poor. So he couldn't pay upfront and claim it from the insurance company. So the scheme had to be cashless. Now, this was nothing unusual because elsewhere in the world, we had examined a number of health insurance schemes. There were schemes which were cashless. But the second one was more difficult. Most of these poor people were illiterate. Now, insurance documents runs into pages, fine print. You don't even know. Even I don't. Whenever I'm I'm scared when I I look
0: at my health insurance.
2: So what do you do? So it had to be a paperless scheme. Now, there was no paperless insurance scheme in the world. So we had to create that. And third and most importantly, a large number of these poor people used to migrate from one place to the other in search of employment. And no scheme in the country provided portable benefits. So, for example, PDS, public distribution system, you could get it only from the shop where you were allocated. You can't go to another district, leave alone another state. Here, migration was happening from Bihar to Gujarat, from Bihar to Punjab, seasonal migration.
0: Especially when we're talking about labor and
2: workers. So, we had to come up with a portable scheme where benefits could be accrued them.
0: And this is before Aadhaar and digital identity. Aadhaar happened after that. In fact,
2: Aadhaar came about a couple of years later. Aadhaar came much later. And finally, we had to understand the limitations of technology at that point in time, where we were not connected through internet, through the country. Even now we aren't. Then of course not. So the identification system, the calculation system, the documentation system had to be offline, online. You know, both things have to happen. So the huge challenge was technology and huge challenge was accounting for these three specific characteristics of the beneficiary. Again, fortunately one ran into a fabulous team, very committed set of people, both within and outside the government, which we sat down, formulated the scheme and we learned as we went along. I don't think everything was fine. Even the definitions kept changing. For example, the definition of family kept changing. We started strictly with father, mother and children. And suddenly someone said that we live in a joint family. What about parents? No. So all these things kept coming in and we s- keep modifying the scheme. We learned as we went along.
0: And eventually it was a family of five.
2: It was a family of five, but hmm. others could be included. Okay. The number of five was because of the purpose of insurance. We could have kept it seven, ten, whatever, hmm. because insurance company would know that how many people are going to be there for them to bid accordingly. Right. So subsequently right now in the, the Ashman Bharat, the, there's no limitation of number. So you can do that, hmm. but it has to evolve over a period of time. I'm, I'm glad that scheme did work. In fact, it was rated as one of the finest schemes in the world by, by the World Bank, by the ILO, by UNDP. All of them felt good about it. This scheme was to be implemented in other parts of the world as well. In fact, I had an offer from the World Bank to do this scheme elsewhere in the world, but I chose to stay back for a variety of reasons. I wanted to do a few things here. Again, it's a question of cake whether I go for the money there or the kick that I was getting here. So, but by God's grace and a fabulous team, the scheme did very well. In between, for the past three, three and a half years, it went into a bit of a limbo because the new government was trying to find a scheme, which to my mind, I think, after having researched so much, finally they fell back on uh, fundamentals of RSBY to you all, Ashman Bharat
0: you talk a lot about the kind of challenges and teething troubles that a scheme like this had. Uh, And one of the challenges is that uh, health is a state subject. And um, you have to be able to work with, one, the state governments, second, with insurance companies, right? And this scheme was also perhaps the first to work with private health insurance as well. And today, at least we are seeing private health insurance's uh, companies sort of maturing. We you know uh, a big list. You can now go to policy bazaar and place it like that and pick which one you want. But this was not the case in 2007 no, and 2008.
2: We, we, we all were learning. And I'm glad that the insurance companies also chose to learn. Initially, yes, there were problems because no one believed that it would happen. It's ultimately, you know, throughout my career, I believe that until you have a belief and you make others believe in it, it won't happen. Gradually, they understood the commitment that the government or its functionaries had towards the scheme. They understood the seriousness behind it. They understood that we were very clear in our mind that we could going to make it happen. They came along. And I think they were very happy with it when they came along.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about, um, say, the unit economics of a scheme like this? How does it work when the government See, has to See, in do the
2: beginning, there was no data available, as they say, the hmm. actual data for the insurance company to bid. Right. So they were bidding in the dark, actually. Hmm. And so some so, of them... So
0: how were they bidding? What were the terms? So they,
2: they bid on the insurance premium. Okay. So we said that so many families have to be covered. Hmm. This is the number. This is the limit that up to 30,000 benefit uh, on a floater basis will be given to them. So once we gave it to them, they made hmm. the calculations hmm. and they bid on a premium. So, for example, the maximum premium that we had in mind was 750 rupees, but the average premium around that time was about 450 for a cover of 30,000. Okay. So a cover of 30,000 was granted and premium varied from state to state. It also depended on the cost of the procedures. Right. So we allowed the states to determine the procedure cost themselves. We guided them. Hmm. We get some details. But if the cost of procedures were higher, obviously the premium would be higher because for the same procedure, the hospital will charge more. Then of course, the second factor was the incidence of illness for which no actuary data was available, but they looked at the secondary data of, uh, you know, uh, illness and then they bid and they learned also because the premium kept changing over the years. So some people did criticize RSBY for negotiating or for auctioning premium every year. But initially we didn't know what the premium was. How could we have it for three years? So my view was that after three, four years, probably then the scheme could be for three years or five years even, because both the insurance companies as the government would learn as to what is the, you, on the basis of the actuarial data that was emerging, what would be the premium. Because now Aishman Bharat, if they have to bid a premium, they have so much data available with them for them to determine as to what is going to be their liability in terms of the payment to the hospitals.
0: So, in this, um, I mean, a lot of the times the costs and the rates that were decided by various state governments would be much lower than the commercial rates in many private hospitals, right? Certainly. So, what was the incentive for hospitals to join? Volumes,
2: volumes, volumes. Okay. Volumes. Volumes drove the hospitals to charge a lesser price for the this. Because it does matter because there is a fixed cost that is already incurred. Right. So if you if you do get a larger volume, you can uh, make do with lesser cost and, and a lesser And And it's procedure. also
0: like hospitals also like uh, hotels and others, they have occupancy issues, right? Absolutely. So uh, not all of their uh, resources are utilized Absolutely. all the time.
2: Absolutely. Not only that, you know, the best bit that was happening after three, four years was that middle and lower level hospitals were coming up in remote areas. Hmm. Earlier, these Patients had to go to larger cities for getting treatment under RSBY. Gradually, the existing hospitals were expanding. Newer hospitals were coming up. So, whereas there was this challenge of facilities not being available in the hinterland, this created a demand wherein the supply also started emerging. So, it's a cash-22 situation. Some people say there are no hospitals. So, what is the big deal in giving insurance? And the hospitals won't come up because they say there's no demand. So, how do you plug that? You start by providing that facility, creating that demand in a local area and then the hospitals will come up
0: and so uh, as a result of this over the last uh, decade now we do have better actual uh, certainly, data certainly
2: have absolutely not uh, only data more hospitals
0: and uh, is there more um, uh, public reports uh, that have also come out on yes, un- understanding told. of disease burden and yes, so on yes, because yes, of this yes, yes. so it was almost like it a discovery was process
2: amazing data that is that emerged for research purposes hmm. in medical terms I remember when I was DGLW, many people approached me and said, if you allow us access to that data, then we will bear the cost of the smart card. Okay. So you look at the, you have the trends of illness. You have the trends of ailments. Once you have that, what phenomenal data it is for any pharmaceutical company or a surgical company. Any any number of companies would benefit out of this data. And over a period of time, no harm. Let people, you know, analyze that data and work towards it because a lot of redundancy can be dispensed with then.
0: So from what was learned in the long experience of RSBY, what do you think are the most important things that uh, need to be in place for now something like Ayushman Bharat to work at scale? I, I think Because the scale now yeah, is much bigger, yeah, yeah, the yeah, coverage yeah, is bigger yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. You see, what Ayush, Ayushman
2: Bharat has already accounted for what happened in RSBY. As luck would have it, the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Ayushman Bharat worked for RSBY in a state, did wonderfully well. He's there. Hmm. There's a gentleman who's coming for the uh, event today. He also worked for RSBY, now a part of Ayushman Bharat. A lot of RSBY team members are a part of Ayushman Bharat. So they are carrying that intellectual capital with them to the new scheme and they will benefit from that. There were certain mistakes committed in RSBY. There were some problems there in RSBY. Over a period of time, you discover them. Those hopefully will get taken care of in Aishman Bharat. So Aishman Bharat can ride on the successes and failures of RSBY and evolve as a better scheme.
0: I want to come to your work in education and then maybe end with a couple of small questions. So could you mention in the book about um, the education mafia that sometimes makes life very difficult? Um, Could you tell us what you think are the biggest challenges? Because even we in public policy see that... uh, Especially school education seems to be so much more wicked a problem. There's so many other things that we're able to solve. And we're finally seeing movement as well. But See, what uh, our when someone asked
2: me uh, about one month down the line, when I was secretary of education as to how am I finding education sector? So I answered by saying that in the coal sector, the mining was underground and mafias overground. In education, it's the other way around. All the mafias are underground, eating into the essentials of Indian society. And it's much more pernicious as compared to coal because it's invisible. Second, the problems relating to coal got to be known to everyone and hence everyone got down to sort it out. In education, no one seems to be bothered about education-related problems because the consequences are not immediately visible. They will be visible 5 years, 10 years down the line. That's the tragedy of it. But we try to identify the, in a nutshell as to what are the problems. And I think the fulcrum around whom the education system rotates is the teacher. Hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of mafias are around this person called teacher. Starting with, I think, the biggest mafia that we have in this country is of beard and D.L.E.D. colleges. There are uh, supposed to be around 16,000 colleges. And we had the data around 4,000 did not exist at all. And they could give you a degree as well as a knockery provided you made the appropriate payment. What could be a bigger mafia than that? In fact, one full chapter is devoted to this aspect as the biggest mafia running. Imagine a teacher who does not go to a beard college, gets a degree and gets a an knockery. What sort of a teaching will you do in a school? <clears throat> to me, that's a crisis point. Fortunately, the government heard, and in the chapter I have mentioned, that we started action against them. Uh, we had to sacrifice a very senior officer, chairman of the National Council for teacher education. He resigned from the IS, under pressure from courts and otherwise. But nonetheless, a major decision has been taken in terms of, you know, uh, changing this entire system to from two years to four years, which will, I think, get rid of all the fake beard and tail colleges we have. So in that extent, we moved in that direction. And I hope whichever the next government is is able to build on that. The second is the selection of teachers. That's another mafia. You know, one of the chief ministers behind the bars because of this racket of selection of teachers. So first, you don't have teachers who are well trained. Hmm. Then you have teachers who somehow get into the service. What is going to what are they going to teach in government schools? So I had suggested and probably the powers that we had agreed with me, but implementation probably will take some time that can we have a centralized system of teacher recruitment in the form SAT and CAT so that it doesn't get influenced by anybody. They can then be deputed to the states and they can be used there. Central recruitment will, you know, take care of this sort of nonsense that has come to be associated with teacher recruitment. Then when the teacher gets into the service, what sort of a training that he gets? For that, we started something called Diksha. It's doing very well. Uh, I have kept track of it even after having um, retired. And I'm told it's doing very well. It's a portal that has been created to update the knowledge of the teacher periodically. It's by the teacher, for the teacher and of the teacher. And so people will benefit. Similarly, the teachers don't go to the school in the northern parts of the country. How do you get that to be done? We got an experiment going in Chhattisgarh and Andhra Pradesh. Both have been extremely successful. Biometric attendance, so on and so forth. I can go on and on. Number of Aspects were clearly identified, steps initiated, and I'm glad they're moving in that direction. Reform in education takes a bit of time, but I'm sure it will happen because it's very, very serious.
0: And the big focus is the teacher. Has to be the teacher. Has to be the 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 teacher. teacher. Um, uh, Mr. Swaroop, could you tell us a little about, um, I mean, having gone through all this, when you're looking at... um, organizational reform. So one thing you've spoken about is bringing your personal conviction in and uh, then, you know, carrying along with that. But one of the tragedies we've often seen in government is, uh, you know, like in Bangalore and elsewhere, we see a great police commissioner comes in, you know builds new systems as a new um, you know escom chief who comes in brings in transparency grievance redress all of that but after their tenure often these systems lapse back and scale back and many times they die so how do you see the institutionalization of these things given that you know, transfers are uh, i have gone
2: ten- on record to suggest very hmm. specific suggestions and i've written about it as well i used to say that when in the government now i have said that in public as well. We have to create institutional mechanism to ensure that the right person gets the right job. Unlike elsewhere in the world, I don't know about how it operates in other countries. In India, individual at the head of the organization is extremely, extremely critical. And I have jokingly said that Ayodhya is not run by Khadau. It is run by Ramchandji. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the right ramchanji sitting at the head of organization. And that's how the transformation comes. Now, how do you do that? Now, you have institutions like UPSC which are credible institutions, which can actually suggest panels out of whom an officer needs to be recruited. So we need to identify such sensitive positions. And on posting to that positions, the panel should be sought from institutions like UPSC. They can also outsource, get experts to determine as to who are the best suited and give the panel to the government and let give the choice to the government on posting with regard to those panels. But this is a political call will have to be taken by a politician. But there can be an institutional mechanism through which you can do it. We have such institutions in the country which are credible institutions can perform that role.
0: Uh, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Sarup, for coming on the Pragati podcast. I know that we've only talked about a small fraction of all the things that uh, you have written at length in your book. And I'd encourage uh, all our readers to pick it up and uh, read it. I'm sure it will be very, very informative. Thank, thank you, you are, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us till the end. You can get your copy of Not Just a Civil Servant on Amazon and the link is in the description. It's currently running as a bestseller in India under the public administration category. You can follow the Pragati podcast on Instagram at PragatiPod and you can follow me on Twitter at ZeusIsDead. That's Z-E-U-S-I-S-D-E-A-D. The Pragati podcast is available on the IVM podcast app and pretty much every other platform and now also on Spotify India. You can find us anywhere. Did I just catch you on your way to work? Or did you end up pulling an all-nighter? Let me guess. You have a packed schedule for the day, the week, and probably the month and the year. That's a lot for your mind to handle, don't you think? This buzzing chaos also brings tons of negative thoughts. Am I right? Try spinning that bottle in a positive direction with me, Chetna, on the Positively Unlimited podcast, every Monday on IBM Podcast. It's time to change your life one alphabet
2: at a time. Janice, what do you think couples did before TV was invented? I don't know, go for walks on the beach, long drives, fancy dinners, have more sex maybe? But what did we do when we decided to move in together? We debated between the Chromecast and the Fire Stick. We gave up on sleeping early so we could stay up watching true crime shows. We got ourselves three cat babies. And basically became the cutest couch potatoes around. Okay then. <laughs> In case you guys still haven't got it, we are a TV crazy, Netflix loving, binge watching Mr. and Mrs. I'm Ani Kuha. I'm Janice Iquera. And if like us, you snort TV for breakfast, lunch and dinner, this is the podcast for you. Tune in every Thursday on the IVM Podcast app or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. This is Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch. Watch.